0: Uh, welcome everybody and good afternoon i am especially delighted to uh, welcome our speaker uh, today professor professor faisal devji i think there is very little need to introduce uh, professor Dev Di- devji but we just mention uh, well he's currently a reader a reader right in south asian history and fellow at st anthony's uh, previously held positions at new york university uh, sorry new-, new school in new york Yale University and University of Chicago, where you where he held it, uh, he got his uh, PhD from, he is the author, most recently, of Muslim Zion. Pakistan is a political uh, idea, which was published by Harvard University Press, and the title of his talk today is Jewish Precedence and Muslim nationalism. Professor Dvortchik, thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you very much, Yaakov. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, forgive me for the skimpiness of my <laughs> notes, but. I find it's always more interesting not to read out um, uh, a paper. I might be incorrect, you can tell me later. Um, So what interests me in writing this book, Muslim Zion, is um, how to tell the story of nationalism differently. Uh, And the historiography of nationalism tends to be dominated by themes of either triumph, you know, nationalism comes and everyone somehow succumbs to it, almost without question, it becomes the natural political form of the 20th century, of modularity and this of course is the work of people like Benedict Anderson uh, where the nation form is seen as a kind of modular form that people can uh, imitate and uh, uh, repeat in many different parts of the world, uh, or of derivation uh, and this of course is the work of Partha Chatterjee to which I refer. Uh, where, you know His question is whether the post-colonial nation-state, especially in, in Asia and Africa, can be seen as a, um, a more or less perfect derivative of some European original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what interests me is uh, not the story of teleological triumph, uh, but rather that of reluctance uh, and self-criticism in the history of nationalism. How can we think about nations that are actually premised upon the critique of nationalism itself, mm-hmm. um, that are therefore self-critical in some sense, that do not naturalize it? And I think many uh, post-colonial forms of national identity in Asia, and Africa, in Latin America um, are of this kind uh, in greater, greater or lesser degree, that they... That they that those who are called nationalists are already fully aware of the perils and pitfalls of nationalism as a political form. It's not simply that they want to just get what Europeans already have, apparently. Um, And that, you know, unlike the sort of romantic form that nationalism often takes on the European continent, many of these national movements, uh, the kind that I'm interested in, are actually entirely unromantic, are prosaic, are almost instrumental, uh, they don't necessarily have a great uh, ideal or romance built into them. Sometimes they emerge almost out of a sense of necessity, or, uh, or of a, uh, out of a history in which no other option has remained mm. available. So nationalism might not even be the first choice of many of these movements. Now, that is not to say that once these nation-states are created, you don't have ideals, romances, and all the rest of them built into them. Uh, but I'm interested in exploring a history which is not always and already about those um, categories. Um, even today, you see such forms of nationalism. They're not simply historical survivals. Um, one can look at um, different forms of national, um, new national movements in the EU, for instance, which are curious because they tend not to gesture towards the older virtues of nationalism, whether it is Scotland or Catalonia, uh, both presume the existence of the European Union um, for their existence, for their own existence, both appear to be national forms that lack sovereignty or that resign sovereignty to a kind of federal whole. Um, you know, that share currency, mm-hmm. uh, so that lack many of the perquisites of classical national movements. Mm-hmm. And they are not necessarily terribly romantic either, right? Um, with the Kurds today also you might see this sort of thing happening. So if you look at the work of Abdullah Öcalan, it's very interesting because it's premised upon the critique of nationalism. It's entirely anti-nationalist and he of course was a great reader of all, of all people, Benedict Anderson, right, who himself was a critic of nationalism. So here you have a Kurdish national movement which emerges out of the critique of nationalism which doesn't want to constitute a nation state of any classical or romantic vintage. So these uncertain self-critical forms of nation building I want to argue are not only uh, true of the past but are uh, in, in a way ever more true of our own present and future. Uh, That it's that history that might be the more illuminating and important history uh, um, uh, in terms of um, uh, the future of nationalism than the old story of triumphant modular or derivative nationalism that the historiography tells us. Um, And in many ways uh, Zionism is part of this self-critical, uncertain, doubtful, history. Um, Now, in in my book I wasn't, uh, uh, because I'm not qualified to really um, uh, write about Zionism per se, but it was important for me because it was important for many of the figures I was writing about. Um, In particular those Muslims in British India uh, who, like Jews in Europe, were constituted as a minority at a certain point. And of course, the figure of the minority only becomes possible, in a, if not in a nation state, then in a kind of proto-nationalist imagination, where numbers of this kind matter. Uh, uh, And numbers of this kind matter when, as it were, elections, democracy, and and, uh, procedures such as these, which belong generally to nation states, matter. Otherwise, majorities and minorities are of no particular consequence. In an aristocratic state, after all, a minority is a good thing to be. Uh, because the minority rules. Uh, But in a nation-state, a minority is not necessarily a good thing to be, right? Uh, So the history of nationalism and the category of the minority as well as the majority are intertwined, I think, one with the other. And the minority only becomes a political reality and a problem once you have a majority, a national majority, and therefore once you have a national imagination. Uh, And whether it is Jews in Europe Uh, and indeed in other parts of the world including the Middle East uh, or in this case, in in the case I was working on Muslims in India, you have a sort of shared language to some degree and something of a shared imagination which becomes clear when you realize, as I did, uh, that many of the people who came to be called Muslim nationalists were drawing explicitly upon uh, um, European Jewry, its culture and the thought of early Zionism in particular. Um, So let me proceed to talk about British India, and then I'll come back uh, to say something about the links with um, uh, European Jewry and with Zionism in particular. So what happens in India is two national movements emerge, at least two, two big ones anyway. Uh, One, Indian nationalism, but also in a way Hindu nationalism. is tied to historical continuities and geographical unities. Right? So this idea that there is a continuity of history from ancient times uh, into the present that makes the nation what it is and that the territory of the nation is already given. Right? The history belongs to the territory, the people belong to the territory, the two are almost coeval um, and that's what gets to make uh, uh, um, the nation state. Uh, in the other, in, in what comes to be Pakistani nationalism, neither of these two things is given. That there is no uh, historical continuity and there is no geographical unity either. Because the only way in which Pakistan can be conceived of as a separate nation state is by denying those unities and those continuities. Uh, by acknowledging them, uh, Muslim nationalists could only be drawn back to the history of India. Right. and to some form of Indian nationalism. So they're quite distinctive ideologically and conceptually, even though they're often dealt with as, um, you know, tweedledum and tweedledee forms uh, of national movement. You know, there's the Indian one and the Pakistani one or the Hindu one and the Muslim one. They're not. Um, in many ways, uh, Muslim nationalism, what comes to be called Pakistani nationalism, unlike Indian or Hindu nationalism, draws from a tradition that is not European and not romantic, but that is, if you will, uh, 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 a new world uh, um, and enlightenment uh, in its uh, character. And I say this because um, Pakistan is conceived like a new world country as something completely new, right? Uh, as a new kind of settlement, something that has never existed before um, that it has a history, of course, in terms of the history of Islam, but the history of Pakistan and the history of Islam are not coeval. Uh, then uh, Pakistan is a new entity. Um, it's not a romantic one, uh, there are no great uh, pans of uh, you know, um, nationalist prose or poetry which talk about the lengthy gestation uh, or survival of this new nation, uh, it doesn't exist. And you can see this, indeed, by its name, as well as its territory. So the name Pakistan uh, is, like USA or USSR, an acronym. Uh, You know, P stands for Punjab, A for Afghania, K for Kashmir, the S for Sindh, and Tan for Balochistan. Missing is Bengal, uh, which became uh, one half of Pakistan, East Pakistan, what is today Bangladesh. Um, It's a name that has no history. It's a completely new name. It doesn't gesture towards the past at all, there's nothing like it. Um, Its territory came to be a curious uh, amalgam because, of course, you may recall, uh, Pakistan was created in two wings, Uh, West Pakistan, what is today Pakistan, and then a thousand miles away, East Pakistan, uh, now Bangladesh, Uh, also very unlikely for a nation-state, which is usually conceived of, at least the European form of a nation-state, as something that has territorial and historical integrity. Right? Um, here you don't have that. In fact, uh, the only models I can think of of this kind of dispersed form of national territory are New World forms. The United States is like that. It has Alaska separated yeah. you know, from it by all of Canada. It has you know, Puerto Rico and Hawaii, etc. Uh, of course, colonial powers, old colonial powers, still have overseas territories, but they tend to be conceived of only in terms of their uh, primary territory in, in Europe, in Western Europe. Um, the short-lived United Arab Republic was like this, bringing together uh, Egypt and Syria, right, in, in Nasser's day. But there are very few such examples. So you have a kind of imperial example, a New World example, sorry, um, like the United States, but also a kind of imperial example uh, uh, because of these, uh, these uh, colonial powers, some of which still retain overseas territories. And of course, the imperial states themselves were often scattered across the globe. Right? Um, and in some ways, therefore, I think Pakistan looks backwards to imperialism on the one hand, uh, uh, but also to new world models And to internationalist models uh, for its status, Um, and it does so not simply out of necessity, but but because, as I said, it's built upon a fundamental critique of the nation of the nation state itself. Um, So that, like many groups that had come to be defined as minorities which sought to make themselves into majorities or national majorities, um, Indian Muslim nationalists uh, were highly dubious about majority defined nation states because they thought that they themselves had been or were the potential victims of one such majoritarian nation, uh, India. Um, And they look to other populations such as Jews in Europe um, but also uh, interestingly uh, Protestants in Ireland and Germans in the Sudetenland uh, as models. And all these models are incompatible with each other in many ways obviously but they came together for Muslim nationalists Uh, when they're trying to think of themselves in an international context. And the other ways in which uh, this international or imperial uh, world is thought about uh, as a way of, um, as a site of escape from the nation state in a way. So just as I describe Catalonia and Scotland, but there are others as well, that seek to construct nation states of a certain kind, but only within the context of a federal or international order, uh, because they are themselves critical of the old-fashioned ideal of the nation-state. So, too, Muslim nationalism sought to locate itself, you know, either in some vision of the Muslim world, itself modeled on the British Empire. The, you know, there's a new book on the category of the Muslim world by um, Jemil Aydin, which makes this argument. Uh, he doesn't make it as clearly as I would have liked him to, but because I think the idea of the Muslim world actually takes the British Empire in particular as its model. Um, it's not any pre-modern empire because pre-modern Muslim empires tended to be contiguous territorially. Mm-hmm. They spread, uh, but they were not dispersed all over the globe in the way that the Muslim world is. It's not an imperial mm-hmm. idea. It's not from the Ottomans or the Abbasids or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But also the League of Nations, also the idea of a communist international. So there are many models which are actively referred to by these figures who, who, uh, who theorize uh, and and um, make Muslim nationalism into a reality. Um, and, of course, they're critical about the nation-state precisely because they have been constructed uh, within national imaginaries as a minority uh, and, therefore, have become a problem. So in Europe, of course, this cr- problem is, uh, um, or question, these are the two terms used, um, is dominated by uh, European Jewry, right? So there's a Jewish question, Uh, or a Jewish problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both these terms, question and problem, are also used for minorities in other parts of the world on the Jewish, European Jewish example. And Amir Mufti at at UCLA has written an entire book called Enlightenment in the Colony uh, on how it was that um, uh, these categories, as they come to be developed in Western Europe uh, with European Jews at their center, get transferred to other parts of the world and in particular to India uh, and reused there. Uh, Now, of course, um, Zionism, unlike Muslim nationalism, uh, relies upon an old name, Israel, all right, and relies upon a long history uh, to legitimize itself. On the other hand, I think, if I'm correct, um, it's still in many of its variant forms, is uh, very critical indeed of the European nation state within which it finds itself. Uh, all right. So here you have the creation of a new nation, of a new nation state. Eventually, that is also critical about the national form. Uh, and you know, I I I wonder if it's correct to say that. Um, uh, well, I don't know if it's correct, but I think um, that it's a—it's too easy um, a slip to make an argument that Zionism simply gets to recapitulate what European nation states do in Palestine. Um, that it's simply a kind of easy imitation, or even more, that it's a kind of new world settler colony, unproblematically. Mm-hmm. I think there are huge debates and discussions and. Uh, uh, moments of self-criticism, indeed structural self-criticism, in their crit- criticism of the idea of the nation-state, which makes it, like Muslim nationalism and other forms of nation-making in the post-colonial world, uh, quite different from any European uh, original. Um, now, the way in which, uh, in South Asia, uh, this critis- the, the way in which this criticism. Uh, manifests itself is very interesting, and it's not only among Muslims. Uh, so Gandhi, early in his career, is very interested in thinking about the British Empire as a new kind of global political form, which would redeem the British uh, and British history in the East entirely if it were to be democratized. And he thought yeah. what you would have, in a way, it's the earliest, one of the earliest and most um, virile, if I can use that word, ideas of what came to be the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is a pale reflection uh, in comparison. Right? So he thought that if you democratize the British Empire, well, first of all, of course, India would take central center stage because of its population. Uh, but secondly, what this would mean is that there could be no majority or minority in such a political entity, because it was too vast and diverse uh, to be conceptualized in terms of majorities and minorities, that you would get rid of the problem of majorities and minorities altogether in this global configuration. Um, uh, His Muslim compatriots also tended to think along these lines, though for different reasons. They were not interested in the same kinds of um, you know, anti-statist uh, and non-violent uh, political forms as Gandhi was, but nevertheless, they share a language. Um, so, for instance, the Aga Khan, who was the first president of the All India Muslim League, was equally interested in this way of transforming the empire, um, and he also was one uh, one of the earliest Muslim nationalist figures to actually draw upon. Uh, Zionism, as a more explicitly as a model, so he had gone um, on behalf of I think the Baron Edmund Rothschild, who was his friend, to the Sultan uh, in Constantinople to plead the cause uh, of the uh, of Herzl, basically of the early Zionists, and to ask the Sultan to set aside Palestine for Jewish um, immigration. Here was the president of the All India Muslim League, all right, meeting the Sultan. And his argument is very interesting uh, because, of course, he knew um, not just in London, but also in India, a number of early Zionists. He sympathized with them. He, after all, was himself part of a minority uh, in India. Uh, He thought that uh, Palestine set aside for Jewish migration would be simply another version of uh, the the migration of Circassians into the Ottoman Empire and their settlement in Transjordan. He uses that example. Uh, he recommends it to the Sultan, who is not so interested in the end. Uh, uh, but the Ahkhan is also interested after the First World War in setting aside German East Africa for Indian settlement. You know, so it's not, um, it's, a, it's a, how should I put it, a generalized logic. It's not a specific logic. It's not about Muslims or Jews. It's a it's a way of thinking about the political future, right? Uh, and in all these ways, he's trading both on uh, sort of imperial forms of um, political accommodation, whether Ottoman or British, but also internationalist ones. Uh, he ends up after the First World War as India's representative to the League of Nations, and eventually rises in the 1930s to become president of the League of Nations. Right. So here is a man who belongs both in the old empire, but also in the new international order simultaneously.
2: Right?
1: Not accidentally he's thinking along these lines. He can have a conversation with Gandhi about them, uh, about this way of thinking, and Gandhi has his own way of considering the empire. Right? Um, and of course, uh, uh, Theodore Herzl and the early Zionists also thought along these lines. Um, you know, how do you actually produce a Jewish homeland, etc., in the Ottoman Empire, or as Arendt Aaron would argue, as late as the 1940s, um, you know, a British imperial state um, uh, within which uh, Jews could have a national home, and like the Indian Muslims had argued much earlier, or Gandhi had argued much earlier, get rid of the categories minority and majority altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's. Um, this is, these are not just ideas coming from European Jewry and going to the East, uh, but they return as well in, in some fashion. Um, the invocation of European Jewry then begins here with the problem or question posed by new minorities, especially after the First World War, with the creation of all these new nation states in Europe, but also, as I mentioned, with the Germans of Sudetenland, the Irish Protestants, etc. Right? Uh, whereas Indian nationalism refers to the non sudatan Germans and to the Irish Catholics, right, so they, they take different sides on each of these uh, conflicts. Um, by the time you get to the 1940s, and indeed even from the late 1930s, um, Zionism comes to, produ- you know, comes to produce actual political categories for the Muslim League. Right? Uh, so the idea of a national home uh, on the one hand, and then later on, how this is replaced by the uh, a, a national state, All right. both somewhat undefined. Uh, and a, a famous Indian um, political thinker and political figure, uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who ends up being one of the chief architects of the Indian Constitution, is the one who points this out in the middle 1940s, mm-hmm. how it is, how curious it is, that Muslim nationalism, eventually Pakistani nationalism, um, ends up using Zionist um, categories uh, for itself, almost deliberately. All right. uh, now both, uh, uh, for many of these Muslim nationalists, uh, both Jewish internationalism uh, and Jewish nationalism or Zionism serve as models of different kinds. Um, uh, they're very interested in Jewish internationalism because they conceive of themselves as being part of an international community the Muslim world. Uh, And they don't want to hive off Pakistan, what comes to be Pakistan, as a nation-state simply among other nation-states. You know, it's part of some larger entity which is international. Um, uh, But, of course, they're also uh, afraid of what happens to non-national forms of identification, uh, whereas these internationalist and imperial models Uh, were um, the imperial model was very popular before the First World War. After the First World War, it goes out of fashion for clear, obvious reasons. Uh, Between the First and the Second World Wars, the internationalist model seems to hold sway, equally understandable because of the League of Nations. Uh, But with the Second World War, uh, it now seems that neither of those two are available. That's when Pakistan becomes a kind of reality. Perhaps, That's also when Israel becomes a certain kind of political reality, uh, for exactly the same reason. Um, So what I want to do is um, read, um, just to give you a flavor of this way of thinking, of this comparison, uh, read some sections of a very famous uh, epic poem uh, by the poet, uh, the Indian poet now considered the spiritual founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Iqbal. Uh, hugely consequential all over the Muslim world, actually, wrote in Persian and Urdu uh, and was a philosopher as much as a poet uh, and crucial to Pakistani nationalism. Um, And here is, this is quite early from 1918, so at the end, towards the end of the First World War, from a work called Rumuz-e-Beykhudi, The Mysteries of Selflessness, um, uh, where he's writing about um, you know, the, the European Jews and the idea of Jewish internationalism. Um, and for Yaakov's sake I can read it a bit out in Persian. Do yes. I have time? Please do. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, uh, and and then the translation. Israel <laughs> Gir, the raghae u sange saddahlizo yeksi mae u panjae gardun chu angurish fashad yadgare musao harun namard as nevai artishinish raft suz sine dam darad zanke chun jamia as Hamshikast, juz barahi raftagan mahmoul nisbat so take warning he's addressing his Muslim audience take warning from the Israelitish case Consider well their variable fate. Now hot, now cold, regard the obduracy, the hardness of their spare and tenuous soul. Sluggishly flows the blood within their veins, their furrowed brow sore smitten on the stones of porticos a hundred. Though heaven's grip hath pressed and squeezed their grape, the memory of Moses and Aaron liveth yet. And though their ardent song hath lost its flame, still palpitates the breath within their breast. For when the fabric of their nationhood was rent asunder, they still they labored on to keep the high road of their forefathers, right? So this is this, uh, it's a warning, it's a gesture of admiration, uh, right? Uh, and there's another, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the Persian on this, take heed once again, enlightened Muslim by the tragic fate of Moses's people who, when they gave up their focus from their grasp, the thread was snapped that bound their congregation each to each. That nation nurtured up upon the breast of God's apostles, and whereof the part was privy to the secrets of the whole, suddenly smitten by the hand of time, poured out its lifeblood in slow agony. The tendrils of its vine are withered now, nor even any willow weeping grows more from its soil. Exile has robbed its tongue of common speech. Dead the lamenting moth... My poor dust trembles at its history. There's more of the same. So, you know, what's interesting, of course, is on the one hand this idea of the tenacity, you know, uh, the unity of a dispersed group. On the other hand, the fear that actually that the 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 ties that make for that unity internationally outside the nation state will have snapped, you know, and that there's nothing left. There's no common language. Um, uh, You know, the the moth circles around the flame, which is a, a stereotypical um, of a poetic trope in Persian and Urdu, etc. Now, it's nothing less than extraordinary that uh, a writer in Persian and Urdu uh, you know, pens such fairly lengthy descriptions of the fate of the European Jews and he can only do so because as an Indian Muslim he identifies with it um, and offers this example to his readers. All right? And this, of course, is not at all in contradiction with the fact that such people would have been Mm -hmm. anti-Zionist. They can take example, uh, they can model themselves on Zionism, and they can take an example, an admiring example, make an example of uh, Jews, and they can still be anti-Zionist. So one has to rethink one's idea of intimacy and enmity here. so let me come to the end here um, just to suggest, uh, to ask, what happens then when these two nation states, in this case Pakistan and Israel, come into being one immediately after the other, uh, and one with a precedent of the other? Because as you know, uh, Pakistan is created in 1947, and when Israel comes into existence at the United Nations in 1948, the creation of Pakistan is taken as a, as a legal precedent for that of Israel. Because with Pakistan, you also have the creation of a nation state on the basis of a religious slash ethnic um, identity. Um, it was therefore ironic, but not surprising, that the anti-Israel uh, charge at the United Nations was led by the Pakistani ambassador <laughs> um, there, uh, uh, Chaudhry, uh, or Sir Mohammed Zafarullah Khan, who himself was from a much smaller minority called the Ahmadis who were eventually ostracized by the Pakistani state that he himself represented. So you can it's minorities all the way down, in other words, you know, there's no none that is actually given as a singularity. Um, The problem in a way, one of the problems is whether and this you can see in the early work of Leo Strauss, for instance, where he asks, you know, is Judaism to lose its character? Uh, as a philosophy, as a theology, as a religion, if you will, and simply become the dark matter of nationhood? Is it simply to be what is given to the nation state? It could be anything. It could be language. It could be uh, race. It could be, but it just happens to be Judaism, which is reduced to those things. Or will Judaism actually take over the nation state? The same question is asked of Pakistan. Um, uh, And there have been similar uh, ways of dealing with that question or that problem. So those two old terms, question and problem, come back to these post-colonial states in in a new fashion. Um, Will Islam simply be what is given, the dark matter that makes Pakistani nationalism or a majority form of nationalism, which can also include Hindus, Zoroastrians, Christians, Jews, others? Or will it actually end up being ideologized? Can a theological or, let's say, religious identity survive unscathed within the nation state, of which it is meant to form a constituent part? Or will it be willy-nilly pressed into the service of the state and defined only by the state? And Iqbal had that worry even in that latter quotation I read from him. Right. Uh, so without a nation state, the Jews are dispersed. But with it, what's going to happen? Right? Uh, The same question he has about Muslim nationalism, because Iqbal is also a critic of the nation state. He doesn't like nation states, but he opts for one as well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) nevertheless, right, in this negative uh, way. So, you know, um, in both countries, then the religious element, if you will, comes to dominate uh, the nation state, though perhaps in a perverse way, um, because it's difficult to identify it either purely theologically, or religiously, if you want to use that term, or philosophically, um, uh, you know, it, and it, it, it dominates it in a simultaneously national way, but also still internationally, that continues to be there. In a way, it's the, the tail end of that international or an imperial way of conceiving of belonging, of political belonging, that had been fashionable in the period before the First World War, and to some degree even in the period between the wars. Uh, with Pakistan, of course, it's the idea of an, of pan-Islamism or the Muslim world. With, with with Zionism, it is the idea of, if you will, a Jewish world, though that's not a common term, but certainly of the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora. Mm-hmm. Right, and in both cases, of course, the the notional boundaries of the nation state, the belonging, the geographical belonging of uh, that is supposed to characterize nation states, is uh, detracted from by the fact that. Um, Jews anywhere can come and become Israeli citizens. They don't have to, as it were, have, they can belong to any language group, etc., and come and be citizens from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Similarly, at least notionally, Muslims from all over the subcontinent can come and become Pakistani citizens, even if they're not from the area um, uh, that um, constitutes Pakistan. So even when they are made into nation states, that old world of the international and the imperial uh, survives in some attenuated mm-hmm. fashion to disrupt, um, uh, even in their more, even in their most nationalistic forms, the very idea and structure of um, the nation state. Thanks. You. Thank you so
0: much. We're open for questions, comments. Yes, Professor. Schley.
2: Can I begin by? asking you a question about the last point you made about the similarity between uh, the creation of Pakistan in 1947 and Israel in 1948. Um, There have been some articles written comparing the partition of India Hmm. and uh, the partition of Palestine, which happened in the same year when the UN passed the partition resolution in 1947. But the comparisons that I've come across were from the perspective of the British Empire. Mm. And the most obvious parallel is that when um, British imperialism um, came to a dead end in a country, the game wasn't worth the candle. The solution was to cut and run and partition the country. This is what they did in India. Mm -hmm. This is what they did in Palestine. And Palestine was unique in the history of the British Empire in that there was no orderly transfer of power to a new authority. Mm -hmm. The British just cut Mm -hmm. and run. But this is irrelevant to you because you're interested in the notion of um, nationalism. Hmm. Um, and can you elaborate on that, on the similarity between the creation of Pakistan and the creation of, um, of Israel from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, of course, and Ireland is, the, as it was, the original sin of partition yes. that, um, uh, that became the legal model for both Palestine and Pakistan. Um, and, of course, partitions have occurred since then. Uh, you know, in the Balkans, and, you know after the Bosnian War, in Sudan, and, you, know, every, you know, in a way, they are, in their modern way, in the in their modern form, they are a result of British um, imperial policy, um, and so there are many more places than we normally take into account, um, uh, including very recent cases that I think should be brought into that history. Um, even if it's not only the British who are doing it this time, it's been made into a kind of part of international law, um, like blockades, which are also a, a very uh, nice uh, British naval invention. Uh, you know, sanctions and blockades, and these come out of British imperial history and have now become part of international law. Right? So the the British element of those things needs to be stated, and partitions, of course, are one of these um, elements. I mean. You're right, of course, that there is no transition of transfer of power as as it was known, um, and there was cut and run. It seems. It seems there was in India to some degree as well, because even though there was a formal transfer of power, um, British troops uh, were withdrawn um, uh, or disbanded. Uh, very few plans were made to actually deal with what uh, ended up being a kind of overwhelming. Uh, mass of uh, refugees and uh, very brutal violence so say about 10 or 12 million people le- moved uh, in the partition of uh, india and you know uh, pro- probably about 3 million killed so these are sizable numbers uh, you know and you, you can count them as being as if a part of the second world war itself this happened in 1947 right so it's uh, if we extend the dating of the war um, you can bring those people in there as well because it's also part of the history of the war uh, and the, the the new role Britain was meant to play in the post-war, uh, in the post-war world. But what might be interesting is to note how the Indian Muslim nationalists actually dealt with the partition of Palestine. It's fascinating. Uh, they had been involved from quite early days um, with it, you know, in a kind of Pro-Palestinian sense, obviously, pro-Arab uh, way, but in a fashion that displays what I was describing, and the, if you will, the inner ambiguity um, of the of Muslim nationalism itself. So even during the Palestine <coughs> Conference, when it was at that, nineteen thirty-five, or uh, you know, you have uh, a strong presence of, and you will know more about this than I do, clearly, of Indians. Um, uh, there, as long as the British Empire, as long as the British continued to hold India, Indian Muslims and Indians in general had a disproportionate voice in uh, Middle Eastern politics because of course the Indian army was used in the Middle East and Africa, uh, the British uh, were worried about uprisings um, in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the moment as if Pakistan became independent, India and Pakistan became independent, the, uh, the power of India and of Indian Muslims in particular was smashed in international, in the international order, which is an extraordinary thing, where independence results in weakness rather than strength in this arena, at least. But the the uh, Indian Muslims who were uh, who, who partook and they, they partook of the Palestinian of the Palestine conference and in the, and the so various negotiations over the future of Palestine in many different capacities. On the one hand, working with the British very closely. In appointed the A himself was sort of you know by the viceroy the you know, and, and on the other hand, you know, emerging out of mass movements in India. But when they are speaking to the Arabs, it's, it's a fascinating story they tell. So if you read someone like Chowdhury Khaliiku Zaman, who was an important member of the Muslim League who has actually written his account of the Indian negotiators, they tell the Palestinians to accept a single state in Palestine. Um, and the Palestinians say to them, But you want partition you want the partition of India. Why are you asking us mm. to have a single state with Jews and Arabs? And they say to him, they say the Indian Muslims say to their Palestinian interlocutors, Ah, oh, but you don't understand. We in India are in the position of the Jews. You in Palestine are in the position of the Hindus, <laughs> you know, yes. you will be a majority. And once you get your nation state, you can, in purely democratic ways, stop Jewish migration or you know, form, formulate the citizenship laws of Israel or whatever Palestine, whatever the country is to be called, in such a way as to maintain your majority. As long as you have a majority, you're fine. Uh, and indeed, to have a Jewish population in Palestine is a good thing for Palestine and a good thing for you. You just have to figure out. So they are capable of actually moving beyond themselves, rising outside their own identities. Uh, to actually take the position as they explicitly said, no, no, we are the Jews of India, we understand exactly what that means. Um, and you know, you are the Hindus, you, the Muslims, the Christians are the Hindus. So they're using Indian categories to actually think about Palestine, you know, uh, Middle Eastern realities in a way that you can just switch. It's like a game of musical chairs. You can literally put yourself in the identity of someone else. So there is a deliberate way in which they are comparing the partitions but not in the fashion that you would imagine. Uh, that even at that moment when they are strongly anti-Zionist, they actually are capable of, of thinking intimately uh, with Zionism because they know exactly what it is since they have modeled themselves on it for many years. This is really interesting. But, um,
2: can, you answer, can you say something more specific about in what sense was the creation of a Pakistan a precedent for the creation of
1: Israel. I think it was it was uh, it was mentioned at the U, it was brought up at the UN as a kind of because it had only it had only been created not so long ago out of a partition after all. Uh, so both the partition is of Palestine is justified uh, because of that of India that has happened, and also the, as it were the making of a religious. National state uh, for a minority is justified um, in Palestine is justified because of what happened in India. I don't think it's um, it's you know it's part of the debate and the discussion and it's basically thrown in the face of the Pakistani ambassador, uh, Sir uh, oh, Khan, uh, as you know. Basically, again, it's another example of this strange intimacy and um, of enmity. You know, it's like okay, you don't want uh, uh, you don't want Israel, but. Um, you have Pakistan on the same principle. How can you possibly deny Israel? Right. So, both the Pakistanis or the Muslim nationalists and the international community fully seems to realize the intimacies that exist between Zionism and Muslim nationalism. Uh, the Arab representatives don't, uh, and they are not so keen on Pakistan. They're actually more keen on India, uh, uh, you know, which they see as the true model of a of a, of a, nation, of a post-colonial nation-state. So in that way, and in, in others, Pakistan gets to be really, kind of, you know, it stands, as it were, in a tangential relationship uh, with um, the Arab world and the world of Islam, um, uh, even though it is, in, at this point, the biggest Muslim country in the world, the most populous Muslim country in the world, and been militarily one of the more powerful ones. Um, uh, and the one championing Palestinian rights, and yet it can only do so uh, from a position that is, if you will, Zionist.
3: There's a question there. Thank you very much, Faisal Fascinating. Um, when you mention the uh, religious uh, appeal, the trans-Islamic or trans-Muslim religious appeal, um, do you understand from the uh, ideologues' point of view, is, is this primarily... Uh, religious, or is it uh, uh, cultural in some sense, or is it a, a combination of um, of both? And the reason I ask because although um, Zionism has, has a putative basis, the Bible and and, and, and um, uh, uh, religion or Judaism, um, in early Zionism certainly that that that's a minority faction, the strong at the start, but it quickly comes a minority, and and what really becomes strong is is the cultural, the kind of secular cultural mm. faction, because most Jews, certainly in Europe, are secular um, uh, Jews, and, and the religious appeal really wouldn't uh, ring strong on their ears. So we've got Karaham and uh, mm. other people who, who are the big cultural Zionists. And then, of course, political Zionism. So even, even though it's in the picture in Zionism, mm. it actually, practically speaking, it's, it's not as, as big as it might mm. seem. I'm wondering if there's a, a parallel or a big difference in, in your case.
1: No, there's a striking parallel because, um, uh, in a way, Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, he's the kind of archetypically secular figure, right? Not religious, not practicing, in any case, from a heretical Shia, heretical by majority Muslim standards, heretical Shiite sect. You know, he's not even a majority in terms of. Uh, this is another example of how minorities go. You can split any minority into more minorities, any majority into minorities. Um, uh, never known to practice religion, uh, you know, publicly drinking alcohol, you know, eating ham sandwiches and sausages, I and, mean, yeah, this is not a, there's no element of practice almost at all, even though retrospectively now, of course, in Pakistan, you have to say that Jinnah was in fact a practicing Muslim. And his official portraits are all in, you know, as it were, um, Eastern, if you will, because it's not Muslim, but Indian dress, uh, whereas, in fact, he wore Savile Rose suits most of his life. Um, And for him, just like with Ben-Gurion and others, the problem is precisely this, what do you do with religion? Um, uh, He might himself be perfectly secular, so what do you make of this thing, this Islam that gives these people Mm -hmm. a national identity? Um, And what he tries to do is, as it were, spiritualize it completely so that it becomes nothing more than a set of inspirations or ideals. It can be reduced simply to that. So reduced to, uh, but when you reduce things to that level, they become entirely generic. Mm -hmm. There's no specificity left in them. So, for instance, say, oh, you know, brotherhood, Muslim brotherhood. Mm -hmm. That's well, you know, other people have brotherhood as well, right? Equal egalitarianism. Well, that's not unique to Muslims. If indeed it is, even specific, even if it indeed even characterizes them. Um, uh, you know, all of these kinds of entirely anodyne and generic things. So he's unable to really do, you can only sacrifice the specificity of both Judaism or Islam by reducing them to these sorts of things. So in the end you have to bring back, even if in a purely symbolic way, um, you know, whether it is elements of architecture or uh, art, a menorah or whatever, you know, things that become national symbols, right? A star, or in his case, a crescent and a star—you uh, know—apparently deprived of any serious religious significance, but always there, you know, always available for appropriation by others who might be more religious, as is true now both in Israel and Pakistan. So I think that's—you know—it's a problem that vexes them, uh, uh, as I said, both someone like Mangurian and Jinnah from very early days, and they're afraid that you will have a kind of more intensely religious um, uh, development occurring. And this is something Leo Strauss had actually mentioned in his early works. You know, it it was, it continued to be a problem, a new kind of problem, in a way that it wasn't for other kinds of nation states. Um, But what Jinnah does is even more curious because he, for him, there is, he's so worried about this in a way, and he's so critical of the idea of the nation-state that the Pakistani nation-state has no, almost no content at all. You know, as I said, they have to reject the language of history. He doesn't like history at all. He just condemns you know, even the Mughal Empire and all the great Muslim empires of the past in India, as elsewhere. You would have thought that he'd gesture towards this great and glorious past. He doesn't. He compares the Mughal Empire to the British Empire. You know, one empire is much the same as another. He's not interested in the great and glorious history of Islam. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, for him, Muslim nationalism is a completely negative thing in a, in a way. So it's there. And I wonder if you can also say this in some sense of a figure like Mangurian, right? So what Jinnah is interested in is, uh, is this problem, India by the 1940s. Is now uh, this is now um, exists in such a way that its political language is determined by terms like <laughs> minority and majority. Right? Once you're minority and majority, the minority is naturally though it might ask for protection. And in the days of the League of Nations, people were satisfied with protections. Once the Second World War breaks out, they all realize, like the European Jews did, that there was nothing to protect them. <laughs> you know that the League of Nations protections didn't work. And so they give up their faith, bitterly, very bitterly, in this international order, this idea of, this is when they go for the nation state, but in a completely negative fashion, in fear and trembling, not because of this great delight in, in, in acquiring such a property, which they had been criticizing for decades in the form of India or in the form of European nation states. Because remember, for India, the nation state was also problematic in general because they understood the colonial state as being an excrescence of the European nation-state. They thought that European liberalism and European nationalism were fundamentally complicit in and implicated in imperialism, that you couldn't separate. Nehru tried to separate the two Englands, he called them. There's the liberal England of democracy and parliament, and then there is the evil England of colonialism. Gandhi said, no, no, there, it's one and the same England. One depends on the other. And so there's a general colonial distaste with European nation states and with the idea of the nation state, to begin with, quite apart from Muslim or Hindu. Then with the Muslims, there's even more for criticism because of their minority character, all right? And there, also their fear, if they actually were to achieve a nation, instead of losing the connections that bound them to other Muslims in a kind of non-statist uh, community. Again, the Jewish example becomes crucial, all right? The loss of language and all of these things that Iqbal uh, describes. So for Jinnah, what he does is to say, okay, there are no majorities and minorities. Uh, uh, Muslims are not a minority because they are so large, there were about 70 million at that time. Uh, larger, as he puts it, than any European population outside Russia. You know, how can you call a population of that size a minority? Plus, they have regional majorities. Hindus are not a majority because they're divided by caste and language and region, just like Muslims are. Uh, so what do you do? You have to try to get rid of these languages altogether. So he's tried to get rid of these languages initially by thinking of an internationalist or an imperial political form. And then eventually by the late 30s into the early 40s by saying, okay, we'll go for the nation state, even though we, we hold our noses when we go for it, uh, and we'll do it in the following manner. There, there's, no majority, there's no majority or minority, there's only one, two nations, the so-called two-nation theory, Hindus and Muslims. Mm. But for him, these are entirely negative forms. He doesn't actually believe that there is a Hindu nation or a Muslim nation. He simply wants to replace the categories majority and minority as legal terms by two nations to create equality, to create parity, so that there's parity in negotiation. So that despite the difference in numbers, Muslims and Hindus have to speak as equals because they are not part of a single nation. and by the time he gets Pakistan, there is no content to this Muslim nationalism. Still, it's become a, it's a huge problem and it's in that, if you will, vacuum, that Islam gets remade. You know, uh, is, what is it to be a Pakistani? Because they're meant to be Hindu Pakistanis and Muslim Pakistanis, right, and Sikh Pakistanis are not all Muslims. Uh, should it be an Islamic State? It wasn't initially. It becomes an Islamic Republic. It becomes the first Islamic Republic later on in the 50s. Or so. So um, uh, I think the second is Iran. So um, uh, there's a, you know, the, the question, it starts off with the question uh, of what is the nation, and even by the time Pakistan is achieved, the question is simply a more intense, is posed in a more intense way, uh, and it's to, as it were, break this or answer this question that religion becomes crucial. Yes,
3: please. Do you think when Iqbal is writing about Zionism as a model, he's thinking not only in terms of contemporary history, condition of European Jewry, etc., but also about sacred history? And Mm -hmm. so the Quranic idea of the Jews as earlier monotheists who somehow have gone wrong, and Moses as a model for Muhammad. And if if that's true, then in that sense... Zionism is kind of not only a sort of accidental model, but a, hmm. the ideal
1: model. That's interesting. Yes, of course. I mean, already in that first poem I read out, Moses and Aaron are mentioned, right? And yeah. Moses is crucial. You know, it's interesting. He's as crucial for um, uh, for very obvious reasons, because of the you know the promised land, the leading of God's people into the promised land. And the making of the law all right uh, so he's crucial to, for any thinking about the nation state um, for Iqbal, but also for Khomeini in different ways. Moses is hu- hugely important for Khomeini in the Iranian revolution um, whether it's the pharaoh the, the shah is Pharaoh right and and Khomeini of course is Moses, uh, then there's a Red Sea moment and the, all of these things are there in Iqbal as well right so Certainly, Moses is um, an Aaron to some degree, but not, interestingly, Jesus, which is really fascinating uh, um, here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think whether, obviously, Iqbal does have a kind of grasp of uh, the history of monotheism and therefore, you know, ancient Judaism. He doesn't write that much about it. Uh, he's more interested in Zoroastrianism, I mean, because of the Persian interests and all the rest, Uh, and he's trying to argue um, (laughs) that uh, Persia, uh, in fact, his first, his doctoral thesis called The Development of Metaphysics in Persia, which is in Munich, uh, is uh, fascinating because what he does there is he basically inserts Islam into a narrative that begins with Zoroastrianism, that begins with Zoroaster and ends with Baha'u'llah, with Baha'ism, right? And it's made part of a single uh, genealogy. And one reason why he's doing that is because he wants to remove Islam from a kind of Greek-centered uh, historical narrative, where Islam only takes its meaning because it somehow transmits Greek uh, philosophy to the West, or somehow, uh, therefore, is a derivative in this sense he thinks that Persia is much more important. And so he's willing to, as it were, make Islam into clearly the the, the, the main element, but still neither the beginning nor the end of Persian metaphysics. The end is Baha'ism. Right? And he's, he loves Baha'ism, strangely, you might think. Um, uh, so the, uh, the, as it were, the monotheistic elements get set aside there, and they're put aside along with, you know, um, Christianity and Judaism are set aside along with Greece uh, because they're being too influenced by Greece. I mean, it's, in a way, it's a kind of a reverse version of what Strauss does by bringing in Maimonides and Farabi to break the completely Greco-centric cloister of uh, European political thought. Right? He, literally, he breaks it by introducing these two, Maimonides specifically, but also Farabi, right? mm-hmm. introduces them into European political thought. And Iqbal, you know, deals with the Greek in this manner uh, by, because of where he is and who he is in India by bringing in Zoro- Zoroaster and all that. Uh, but where he really thinks about Judaism and in comparison with Islam is in the early modern period. So he's fascinated by Spinoza. Uh, and he supports the Jews of Amsterdam against Spinoza. He thinks Spinoza is, of course, a, is a great philosopher, but he argues that the Jews of Amsterdam, situ- he follows, you know, Willin, Will uh, Durant, you know, that story of philosophy. You know, um, situated as they were as a kind of vulnerable minority in Amsterdam, they had no choice. They could not tolerate a Spinoza. Uh, they had, despite him being a great philosopher, they had to close ranks against a Spinoza because Spinoza would destroy the Jewish community. Um, and he recommends that as a model for, if you will, Muslim conservatism in India. That though he might not agree with that conservatism, um, what was true of the Jews and Spinoza is also true of Muslims right so he's interesting because he takes um, not ancient Judaism, but if you will diasporic Judaism as his model, but that is also makes perfect sense given who he is and given Muslims in India uh, so you don't have that much, apart from prophets like Abraham and Moses and who are, you know, seen fully as Muslim prophets, it doesn't um, really deal with um, monotheism and its ancient history. So,
0: I want to ask you, I guess, um, moving
2: to the contemporary period, um, sort of about the afterlife of this book, because I think
0: what you presented today very clearly could um, upset a lot of contemporary debates mm. or disrupt a lot of contemporary debates, and I'm just wondering how you've negotiated that as a scholar. Um, how your work maybe has been instrumentalized by a variety of forces and mm-hmm. how you kind of contend with, with that.
1: Well, it's not, so, so somewhat surprisingly, it's not resulted in uh, much anguish for me. I mean, yes, in Pakistan there has been some upset, um, uh, you know, and I'm occasionally called anti-Pakistani, but I'm not a Pakistani anyway, so, uh, and never have been. So, um, uh, so then I might be described as an Indian nationalist. Uh, because I am of Indian origin and all the rest, but what's interesting is that there it plays out as an Indo-Pakistani fight. It's not about anything else. Um, uh, the comparison with Israel, of course, it's not. How should I put it? It's um, it's not one that runs throughout the book. It's there, obviously, but uh, because there are others also, and I describe some of them, you know, Ireland, etc. Um, I found the term Zion interesting not simply for polemical reasons but because it has meaning beyond Zionism which um, is why I, earlier in the book I brought in Liberia mm-hmm. you know and the making of a new you know a state for a, for, of a minority displaced a human population returning etc a hundred years before Pakistan and Israel right and so you don't normally get discussions of Liberia in the history of Zionism but I think you might right? and also there are ways in which because with Liberia and with movements in South Africa and elsewhere, you have explicit invocations of the children of Israel and the wanderings and the Promised Land and all of this uh, kind of stuff. So they are part of the history of Zion, if not Zionism anyway. And that there's a prior Christian history of Zion before Zionism begins, right, obviously. But um, so apart from that, it's very difficult to deny, you know, the comparison. Even in Pakistani Textbooks to this day in school, you will have sentences like you know, in the middle of you know the 20th century, two ideological Nazariati Nazariati. ideological states were created, mm-hmm. Israel and Pakistan. They say it clearly, right? Mm-hmm. I quote here in the preface, uh, Ziaul Haq, the military dictator, mm-hmm. who was president of Pakistan, saying. You know, Pakistan and Israel are two states, the, the only two states in the world that are much most like each other. And if you get rid of Judaism from Israel, it will collapse, if you get rid of Islam from Pakistan, it will collapse, whatever is meant by those terms. So this is the stuff of popular culture. Everyone knows it in Pakistan, it cannot really be denied. Uh, I've just worked it out in terms of political thought. Um, uh, so people might be queasy with that. Um, in Israel, I mean, I gave a paper based on this book at Hebrew University a couple of years ago, which when it was five, you know, so um, it was very interesting for me. Uh, and you know, it makes me think that I'd like to know more about, you know, obviously I read the, a lot of secondary work on Zionism uh, when I was writing this book, um, uh, but you know, uh, I'm certainly not expert enough to be able to pronounce on it myself, though I find the parallels fascinating.
0: May I ask? Uh, I take the prerogative and uh, take the question. Um, you mentioned that both uh, national movements arise from uh, a critique of, of hmm. the European nation states' mindset of minority and minorities, and I guess they both arise from the Jewish problem in hmm. different variations of it, in, in a sense. Um, but if you fast forward especially the Israeli case, it's clear that the nationalist, statist mindset has taken over, mm. so much so that the Judaism itself mm. is redefined along these lines mm. to the degree to which Israel is uh, uh, obsessively busy with the arithmetics of, yeah. so to call it ethnics, race, whatever, uh, viewing its own Jewish sense as dependent upon preserving a Jewish mm. majority. I think it goes back to what you um, uh, referred to in uh, Leo Strauss's work, mm. At the point we are now, it seems that uh, the relationship he was hoping for, that the ideas overcome the politics, is reversed. The politics overcome the ideas Mm. to the degree to which the Judaism is is redefined in a sense in Israel. Mm. It has been nationalized in the sense that it is read
1: through uh, this line. Has the same happened in Pakistan? To some degree, because especially after the uh, Pakistani civil war in 1971 that resulted in the creation of Bangladesh, you know it became clear that Islam was not something that kept these two things together, right they are both Muslim populations, but uh, they could not survive in a single political unit mm-hmm. uh, so and in a way that made islam much more ethnicized uh, and located in Pakistan Of course, that doesn't mean that there are no pan islam you know, they' huge you know whether it's militant or not mm-hmm. uh, movements that are but those movements i what I find fascinating is that it's the People who are defined as religious, who have taken on the most crucial categories of the early secular nationalists, uh, you know, So, for instance, this uh, the the anti-nationalism itself, mm-hmm. which is not, uh, you know, it's not it's it's not the ulama, it was not the clerics who were propounding theories that were uh, against nationalism. Uh, they didn't have that much problem with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, people like Iqbal and you know people like Jinnah and others who were. Iqbal was arguably a, 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 at least gave the impression of being a practicing Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, though he had running fights with religious leaders and authorities. Right? So neither of these people nor anyone else in the Muslim League really was an acceptable figure for the deeply devout and the religious establishment. Much of the religious establishment sided with the Indian National Congress uh, and went with India, not with Pakistan, because precisely because the leaders of Muslim League were seen as being too secular uh, and um, uh, uh, you know likely to betray Islam, uh, and they were used to Islam as being a part of a state of some sort, whether dynastic or colonial, and why not national? You know, there was not a huge problem because Indian nationalism was not about eliminating religion from public life. Um, But now in Pakistan, in what you would call the religious right, what in Israel I suppose you would call the religious right, has taken on these very anti-nationalist themes from their secular, if you will, rivals Mm -hmm. among the early Muslim nationalists and are also interested in propagating religion or Islam as national culture. you know, so that the very arena which Jinnah, for instance, had left uh, vacant, he didn't give a definition of what it meant to be Pakistani, what was the national culture of this. Uh, it had to be made post facto. Um, these guys think they know it, and precisely because it doesn't, doesn't exist, it must be Islam that becomes national. So there is an identification of uh, both national culture and Islam, but also Islam as a form of, as a critique of nationalism of a European kind. So both of them uh, coexist uneasily. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're very pro-Pakistan, but at the same time they don't want to sacrifice the kind of larger Muslim world, which is not the same thing as the international order, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And you find this in particular with Islamism. Uh, Indeed, with Islamism you have this very curious uh, situation in which uh, Abul Ala Maududi, the most important of them, the founder of the Jamaat-e-Islami um, party, um, you know, is interested in or was is long dead, uh, died in Buffalo, New York, believe it or not, uh, but where he had gone for medical treatment uh, after inveighing against America for decades. But he um, he was deeply suspicious not only of the form of the nation state. He was deeply suspicious of sovereignty since you've written about this, um, um, because he thought that that was a form of tyranny and was uh, a form of idolatry. that the European idea of sovereignty, as propounded by thinkers as diverse as Jean Baudin, uh, Thomas Hobbes, whom he cites, by the way, um, is so absolute and so laden with power as to be impossible for a human being to wield. It is impossible, as we know. Uh, so in his view, sovereignty, whether belonging to a dictatorship or a monarchy or a nation-state, but particularly a nation-state, is a theological category. Mm-hmm. But in earlier days, he thought, there was, because sovereignty could only belong to God, ordinary rulers could never be sovereign. It's only with the secular nation-state yeah. That sovereignty becomes possible, and therefore the secularists are in fact the ones who are most truly theological, yes. because they try to they take God's place. And of course, you have this critique in Israel as well, right? Um, and so, what do you do? You need to somehow, by saying that sovereignty only belongs to God, which is a kind of Islamist mantra, shibboleth, you know, cliche in a way. Uh, you try to you expel it altogether and you have to conceive of society, and society running itself, managing itself, this is not accidental. You know, Maududi comes out of a um, a situation in which he had been in his early days uh, a great fan and biographer of Gandhi's, for instance. So this is a situation which, like Gandhi, was also deeply suspicious of sovereignty. Uh, And Gandhi too, drawing upon both anarchist and Bolshevist uh, narratives, by Bolshevist I mean the very end of Lenin's uh, theory, the withering away of the state, mm-hmm. right? How can you conceive of a society that manages itself without sovereignty? Uh, that in Gandhi, in terms, this would be self-running villages and all the rest, nonviolent, right? In Modi, terms, you would have the mechanism of a state in a way, but its authorities would be religious authorities outside the state, who would basically control. Not the levers of power, uh, but because they were outside it, but prevent the state from assuming the sovereign and absolutist form. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both cases, you have it's an anti-political vision in so, yes. in so many ways. You know, so that's what he does is he takes the deep suspicion of nationalism, and he turns it in this direction, uh, precisely by doing what the secularists never did. They all wanted sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to get rid of sovereignty, and so the Pakistani constitution. Uh, reserve sovereignty for God. Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course it's very difficult to, engine, to actually have that in practice and what happens in practice is that precisely because it's not vested institutionally, yeah. uh, it comes back to haunt the state from many different directions. Mm-hmm. You know, so I often tend to think of the military coup as being, in a way it's a classic Schmittian version of sovereignty mm-hmm. because it's a temporary, a supposedly temporary suspension of the law yeah. Uh, and the military coup gets to be—it works like a miracle in a way, you know—it suspends natural yeah, law, yeah. And, it, uh, and that's the way in which sovereignty manifests itself yeah. in uh, in Pakistan, precisely because it's not situated anywhere. Mm-hmm. The president has, doesn't have it, the prime minister doesn't have it, and parliament the doesn't court, have it. Yeah. Uh, so it's difficult to keep it away. But yeah. the ideal was a social was social self-management. The sovereignty to God and the bomb to yes, the president.
0: Yeah. yes. Uh, last question, maybe. When thinking
1: about well, actually quite a few thoughts about about the issue of um, Muslim nationalism as built on fundamental critique of the European nation state. Mm. And you also mentioned about Zionism being that way, and everyone was kind of nodding.
2: And I was thinking, maybe perhaps I'm thinking about this too limited, or I'm maybe even too cynical. Um, the biggest critique I could see Zionists having against the European nation state is that they were rejected by it, mm. not that. Not with the
1: actual perhaps concept of it, and so um, even if we think about how Zionism doesn't really object anti-Semitism, it just kind of internalizes it and then tries to flip the images in its own
2: creation of, of itself, self of its nation. Then it doesn't seem to me as that same critique, perhaps, um, or maybe I'm not, I'm not kind of you know kind of really getting down to. Uh, so I'm trying to understand. How do you see then Zionism as kind of this fundamental critique similar
1: to the Muslim nationalism? Yeah, I'm, you know, it, um, as I said, it's not something I'm particularly expert in, but two, two, two things, right? One is that um, almost, as it were, by default, or maybe speaking in a structural manner, if there is already a critique, as there was, uh, of nationalism as the problem, which makes uh, which makes the minority a question, uh, then there 's already a realization that you know they, not all is you well know, one might want to be part of that nation uh, while at the same time realizing um, that it, it's, it, it has reinvented or made a new kind of um, uh, made a group that might have been once considered purely theologically or religiously into a new kind of problem, uh, minority problem, um, in which numbers are crucial, what you were mentioning. Um, and that there's, there seems to be full realization of uh, from Herzl onwards. The fact that you might also then want a nation state of your own if you can't inter- be integrated into the old one, in a way is neither here nor there. I mean, I, I find fascinating Herzl's novel. Uh, what's it called? Um, I don't know. Yes. Oh, yeah you know, where you actually have these two, <laughs> you know, you have a new world, as it were, yeah. version, and you have an old world, and you know, you you move from one to, and he seems to be rehearsing that problem, you know, can you belong, um, uh, uh, is it possible to have a nation state, or do you, Robertson Crusoe-like, start again in some different fashion? Uh, similarly, the way in which he tries to uh, insert a Jewish homeland into the Ottoman Empire, eventually the moves to think about a Jewish homeland within a British, within as Arendt does with the British Empire or Commonwealth, these are all ways of, which of thinking that recognize the problem that the nation state poses for minorities. once' they been defined as minorities. Um, so I think there is a critique. It might not be expressed in the same way or as fulsomely. Now what Amir Mufti does is that I think he, he, I don't think he, I don't think it's a very productive way of doing it. He then talks about various Jewish and indeed Muslim Intellectuals who abandon this abandon either Zionism on the one hand or Jewish or Muslim nationalism on the other, and become these pariah figures and he's relying on Aaron's the word pariah of course is interesting because it comes from India right so um, uh, pariah goes from India to Europe uh, yes. to describe Jews and ghetto goes from. Europe to India to describe to both caste, uh, caste generally is low caste groups. So there's a, a nice or not so nice exchange of derogatory terms here. Um, so Ahmad Mufti basically says, oh, these are the great heroic figures, the pariah figures, right, who have removed themselves. I don't think it's, who wants to be a self-conscious pariah, uh, you know, and how is that a political possibility worth anything? Um, instead of which you can understand why people for whatever reasons go for either Muslim nationalism or Zionism because it's a real political project of which something can be made. You can't really make very much of the prize because it's a purely individual status. Um, uh, so I think the, you know, there is by default or structurally the critique is there, though it might be voiced quite differently. So for instance with the Muslim Nationalists there is an explicit disavowal. Of nationalism, which Iqbal, for instance, links to—you know—I didn't do it; I didn't have the time. But you know, he he links to capitalism in the form of private property. That the nation-state is simply private property writ large, and guarantees private property, Um, and uh, it makes all—going back to ideals—you know—Strauss. It really turns all ideals into interests. Interest being defined by property of a certain kind, so your, or your religious identity can also be an interest. You've conceived of it as you conceive of your body as your property, mm-hmm. which is what gets rights. Rights are attributed to interest, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And this, he thinks, is a is a is a hideous deformation of religion, right? That when it becomes property and rights and interests and all the standard language of politics, then all ideals disappear. And all that is left is instrumentality, which is violent by definition. So the preservation of religious ideals is not there because uh, uh, you know simply because they exist, but because he thinks that it's not a historical thing that we must protect what has existed before, uh, but it's a futural orientation because he's interested in, as we saw both with Judaism, but also with Islam, in how. Religion conceived of in a non-instrumental, non-interested way, as a, let's say an ideal or a principle with specificity, can actually stand as a bulwark against purely instrumentalized form of politics, which is violent out of necessity, uh, right? In which anything can be remade into something else, um, and that is what he doesn't want. That's what he thinks nationalism brings in. So it's a philosophical critique of nationalism. It's not simply oh, we are a minority, so it won't do us any good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people like Strauss, arguably, if you will, on the right, has it, and Arendt also, in our own way, has it on the, as it were, left. Uh, so it's it's there. You might not say it's part of mainstream Zionism, but then neither is that part of mainstream Muslim nationalism, though many of the chief figures of it are very conscious of if I may just make a short comment, yes. I think one of the ways to understand this is to
0: to do the rhetorical uh, uh, dangerous move of separating the Zionist European from the Jewish Europeans. The European Jew, did, I think, by definition, does challenge uh, European nationalism. Uh, political Zionism, specifically inside the wider, firm, it does, uh, yeah, it does only complain about not being uh, included and then mm-hmm. wanting to do it. Uh, I think this reason, uh, this has been a great lesson in the in the problematics, to say the least, of uh, adopting a European discourse and conceptualizations to speak of non-European cases and and then the realities that grow out of them, which are much stronger than any idea and any any matter of uh, uh, linguists. Um, I have to thank the the speaker, thank you all, thank you Professor Devji um, for this uh, lovely discussion.